preach your word in freedom, without fear of the government persecuting us. We pray for those where that is their, their reality, those in many countries around the world that it is illegal to be a Christian, it is illegal to own a Bible, it is illegal to worship Jesus Christ and to share your faith. We pray that you would strengthen the believers in persecuted countries and help to prepare us when it's our turn to suffer for your name's sake. Help us to be bold as lions and gentle as doves, filled with your truth and your grace. Help us now to hear the word of God, internalize it, so that you might enable us to take root in your word and bear fruit of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series of messages here at UBC titled, God in My Bedroom. It's a hot topic for a hot summer about our sex lives and our sexuality. It occurred to me while preparing for this message that there are some who've been listening to these messages who are either A, virgins, and are content with being a virgin, and God has gifted you with the gift of celibacy, and to you I say, praise the Lord, and pray for the rest of us. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being content in your celibate status. B, there are those of you who are no longer sexually active for various reasons, and they too are, you too are content with your status. And so to you, I also say, praise the Lord and pray for the rest of us. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being content in your status of celibacy. Even Sharon here sharing joyfully how the Lord has enabled her and empowered her to, to be celibate in Christ after a life of immorality and sexuality. Now for the rest of us who are, I presume, the most of us in this room, let me begin by way of a few reminders of what we've already learned in the three prior messages. I'm going to start with this reminder in case there are those who missed the other messages and might feel like I'm picking on one group of people unfairly. I'm well aware that today marks the end of what what we, what the LGBTQ neighbors call Pride Month. And today there is a Pride Parade moving throughout our city and it's going to come right past our doors as it does every year at some point, either during or after our service. Now if you're familiar with the scripture passage that we're going to share today and preach from today, you know well that many in the LGBTQ community, they either try in vain to explain these passages away, or they simply ignore them in disbelief. And so as we study our passage for today, my hope is that no one will sit here wondering why I'm singling out one group of people to preach against their sins without regard for other sinners. We should all know that the Bible is no respect for persons as far as sin is concerned. God doesn't care about the color of our skin. He doesn't care about which zip code we live in. He doesn't, he's not impressed with our bank account or our retirement accounts. He's not confused about our sexuality or sexual identity. 
or the many labels that we've invented to declare our sexual identity to the world, God is not impressed nor confused. But he passionately loves every single person that he made because he made us all in what? His image. And so let me quickly review what we've learned so far. Number one, God made us sexual beings. The Bible says that God made us male and female. Number two, sex has four purposes. One of the purposes of sex is to fulfill God's commandment to Adam and Eve and to the rest of the generations to come to be fruitful and to multiply. That's called procreation. Another purpose of sex is sheer pleasure. God made us sex. He made sex super enjoyable. A few pleasures in life equal sex pleasures. Third purpose of sex is to help create a permanent bond between a husband and wife. And, and so the three purposes so far, procreation, pleasure, and then permanence. The pleasures of sex are to be enjoyed in the covenantal bond of marriage between a husband and a wife. And the intimate pleasures of marriage are, they are foretaste of the divine covenant that exists between Christ, the divine bridegroom, and his church, his bride. And, and so the intimate pleasures of marriage are that, are to give us a foretaste of the, the greater reality that is ours in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the fourth purpose of sex. It is to reflect the greater reality of the intimate relationship between Christ and his church. Now, number three, third lesson we learned is that couples are reminded by God that their bodies no longer belong to them alone. Once they're married, your body belongs to your spouse. And therefore, you are to give yourself to your spouse intimately unless by mutual consent you are entering into time of fasting and praying. Therefore, husbands and wives don't use sex as a weapon to punish your spouse. Number four, married couples are not to commit adultery. Marriage is an exclusive relationship between a husband and wife. It includes the two of you and God and nobody else, period. The Bible does not condone what has come about in recent years, something called swinging couples or open marriages. All extramarital sex is condemned in scripture. Number five, Jesus said that even looking with lust at someone is like committing adultery. And so that means looking at pornography is also sinful. Number six, in Ephesians chapter four, Paul urged the believers in Ephesus to put off their old selves like dirty, stinky, sweaty clothes, uh, to take off your old self, which is full of impurities and every kind of sexual immorality, and to put on your new self, which is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. We are to be holy and righteous as Christ is holy and righteous, because he died to make us so. And his Holy Spirit lives inside of us to make us so. But we must cooperate with it. There's some work for us to do in our own sanctification process. Number seven, all sin is deceptive. Remember that. All sin is deceitful, but sexual sin is even more so. And, and part of the reason is that it feels so good and it therefore 
therefore deceives us into thinking that it must be morally good, even when it's outside the biblical prescriptions for us. And so Paul tells us not to be deceived by sexual sin. It always leads to a dead-end street and painful consequences, always. In Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Peter 4, the Apostle Paul and Peter, these two apostles, they list many categories of sin in addition to sexual immorality, which are condemned by God, including drunkenness, idolatry, greed, and all kinds of evil desires. And they both encourage Christians to stay away from such ungodly attitudes and behaviors because, again, Christ died for such sins. He died for such sins. And he, he's made us holy by his own blood shed on the cross for us. And so these apostles warn us that people who become characterized by such sins will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But all sin is deceptive. All sin can be forgiven. That's some good news. The good news is that we have a God who is not only able, but amazingly willing to forgive us for any and all sins that we have committed. And if and when we seek his forgiveness and repent of those sins, we shall indeed be forgiven and cleansed and restored. Now here's, here's the thing. We don't deserve this marvelous grace we've been singing about. We don't deserve the mercy of God. And that's why we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's why the gospel is such good news for the sinner. Finally, number eight, it is possible, it is possible to become sexually pure. You already heard a testimony, but God never commands us to do or to be something that is impossible to do or to become. So now after all that long introduction, let's press into our passage for today's message. Please open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Part of the first few verses we're going to read are the memory verses we've been focusing on for the month of June. Next week we'll have a new memory verse. But for now, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and, and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, and because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools 
And they exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created beings or created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Let's stop right there. Incredible passage of Scripture. Now it's clear from the simple reading of this text that the men and women with, who consistently ignore God's created order regarding their sexuality will inevitably and eventually be deceived into exchanging God's truth for the lie of homosexuality. Clear. Now I confess that I do not know what it's like to wake up every day feeling like I am trapped in the body of a different gender. Like many, many people today experiencing gender confusion, even children. I, don't, I have no idea what that is like. I have no idea what it's like to have sexual fantasies with someone of the same gender as me. I have not, it's never, ever crossed my mind like it crosses the minds of millions of people today all over the world. I've heard painful testimonies of children and adults who, on the outside, biologically look like one gender, but everything else about them on the inside feels like the opposite gender. I have friends and neighbors who openly identify themselves as L or G or B or T or Q. And I love my gay friends and neighbors because God loves them. And because they're made in the image of God just like I am made in the image of God. So God loves them. I love them. We as a church ought to love them. The church must also admit that we have not always treated the LGBTQ community with the respect and the love that they deserve. We need to confess that and repent of that. I can only imagine how painfully confusing and torturous it might be for anyone, especially children, to have these confusing feelings inside. That doesn't match their biological reality outside of their bodies. And so the question for us today is, how do we deal with the existing realities of personal feelings, factual science, and factual faith or biblical teaching? See, so far, science and biblical teaching are on the same side in this dilemma. 
Scientists have been desperately searching for what some call the gay gene that would help to explain the confusing feelings that people in the LGBTQ community feel. They've been searching for this gay gene, but they have not yet found it. This would be an important find for the LGBTQ community because it would, in their minds, once and for all, settle the worldwide debate and legitimize their behavior. They have successfully, however, shifted the attention of politicians away from their behavior and to their rights, claiming to be a part of the civil rights struggle of the African-American peoples in this country because they believed that they were born that way, just like I was born with darker skin and coarser hair and other Negroid features. And that is why the Supreme Court has legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states, despite the lack of genetic evidence that anyone is born that way. The Supreme Court has caved in to the mass testimony and feelings of our LGBTQ friends. As a matter of fact, many in the community have jumped out ahead of the scientific community and have printed up t-shirts, which you'll see today in the parades, proclaiming to the world that they were born this way. We also have the testimony of thousands of people who formally identified as LGBTQ4Q and practiced that lifestyle for many years until they had a conversion experience. They came straight, if you will, and some have gone on to have healthy heterosexual marriages and by God's grace have children and others have remained single and celibate. And so I want to commend to you three prominent examples and you can purchase their books, check them out in the library or see them on YouTube. Number one, Jackie Hill Perry, who's going to be here this summer at the the uh, conference on the Moody Bible Institute, incidentally, is called Legacy, the Legacy Conference. We had a flyer in our bulletin a few weeks ago in our service advertising that you can go and meet Jackie Hill Perry. The title of her book is this, Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. Second, Rosario Butterfield, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. She was an English professor at a, at a university on the East Coast and and was befriended by a pastor and his wife, and, uh, and he discipled her, and she became a believer. She's now married to a pastor, and has children, and, and is speaking and writing about her life as a gay woman, and uh, now a, a pastor's wife married to a pastor uh, who's male, and has children, and how God has set her free. Incredible story. And then third, Christopher Yuan, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. He and his mother have shared their story right here at UBC a number of years ago. And so it really boils down to this. How much credence or credibility should we give to intangible feelings that contradict biological reality and biblical teaching? Think about the kleptomaniac. These are people described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We mentioned them last week or week before. Kleptomaniacs wake up every day with the urge to take something that does not belong to them. They either have a mental or an emotional health problem that leads them to that deviant behavior. The same may be true for those who constantly feel the need to tell lies or shade the truth. Anybody know a habitual liar? 
in your family? Okay. Maybe it's you. Think about the never-ending cycle of retaliatory gun violence in our streets. I've spent a considerable amount of my time trying to understand the young men involved in this bloody war with each other. It seems so senseless and so heartless and so brutal and unjust. One of the many things, one of the many things many of them do when they wake up these gangbangers, as we call them sometimes, one of the many things that they do when they wake up in the morning, with the thought of gunning down one of their rivals, the ops, as they call them, they begin listening to what they call trap music. It's a, it's a very, very deviant form of rap music. They call it trap music. And it helps to psych them up and numb their natural feelings toward another human being's life, including their own. And it gets their blood boiling to the point where they're able to pull the trigger despite the following realities. Number one, God says don't commit murder. Number two, they're, if they're caught, they will go to prison for a long time, maybe for the rest of their lives. Number three, if they are caught by their rivals, their pops, they would be shot, maimed, or killed themselves. And number four, they could go to hell forever when they die. Despite those four real and rational reasons, Against pulling the trigger, many of them get up every day and seek to pull the trigger, ending another person's life. Now, in each of these cases, with the thief, the liar, and the murderer, we don't change the laws to accommodate their behavior. No matter how deep and consistent their feelings are that leads them to do what they do, we don't change the laws to accommodate them, except in the case of the LGBTQ. Society recognizes and agrees with God's word that it is not right to steal, lie, and commit murder. But we recognize these people as human beings that need help, and so there are many professionals who make a compassionate career of helping people to get the, to a healthy place, which leads to changed behavior so that they no longer steal or lie and murder. And the same is true for those in the LGBT or Q community. They too can change as per the testimonies I've already shared with you. So just because we have a deeply held belief or a nagging feeling doesn't mean we have the right to act out on that belief or feeling. There must be some objective truth or standard by which we judge whether that belief or feeling is valid and good and should be acted upon. I realize at this point that some people listening to me right now at this point will be furious with my statements comparing liars, thieves, and murderers with homosexuals. But those aren't my comments. Those are God's words. I'm, I'm simply trying to help you understand what God's word says and what it means for us in our society. I often feel like the great preacher Adrian Rogers who once said, I'd rather tell you the truth that hurts, but then heals, and tell you lies that comforts and then kills. Ooh, that's good. The fact is, God is in the bedroom of our gay friends and relatives, too, just like he's in your bedroom and mine. And he is offended by their sinful attitudes and behavior because it is contrary to his design and purpose for their lives. And it is harmful to their lives and to 
our society. And furthermore, he made the ultimate sacrifice so that those suffering with the confusing and torturous LGBTQ attractions could be healed. They could be transformed into the likeness of Christ. They could learn how to deal with those internal struggles in a way that remains biblically faithful to the scriptures and the Christ who loves them. And that is why Paul begins this message with the declaration of pride in the gospel. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Did you hear that? Everyone can be saved. If only they believe the truth of God and turn away from the lies of the world. It's sad and ironic that today our LGBTQ friends are no longer ashamed of their sin. To the contrary, their sins have so blinded them that they are loud and proud about their sins. They publicly celebrate their sin and promote their sin even to the point of teaching children in public schools that it's okay to join in this sinful lifestyle. And at the same time, sadly, many Christians and denominations have become ashamed of the righteous, pure, and powerful gospel that is able to save those deceived and trapped by sexual sin. We read Romans chapter 1, 28 to 32, it seems as if there were those in Paul's day who were equally loud and proud of their sexual sins. But Paul, Paul is loud and proud of the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But sinners and some who claim to be Christians are loud and proud of the sins for which the gospel was revealed from heaven. It's ironic, isn't it? But it's also prophetic. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah warned people in his chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Let's go back to our text in Romans and read again verses 21. In 23, in chapter 1, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Just like the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before. Although they claimed to be wise, they became what? Fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Or lie. And then we find in the next verse what I believe to be the most haunting words in all of Scripture. I tremble to even read it. It says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Listen, when God reveals truth to us, both in his created order and in his holy word, the Bible, he tells us that there's no excuse for us not to receive it, believe it, and live it out. Therefore, if we reject his divine revelation and refuse to believe it, but instead choose to believe the lies of the world, which ultimately 
faith comes from Satan, then we are left in the wake of his wrath. Verse 18, Paul, just as God's gospel has been revealed from heaven to all those who would believe, now his wrath is also being revealed from heaven to all those who but refuse to believe. Notice it says the gospel is revealed to those who believe, but the wrath of God is being revealed to those who disbelieve. You see that? Now, this is the wrath of God, and it is repeated three times in verse 24, 26, and 28. In this familiar phrase, God gave them over. You see it? God gave them over, verse 24, in their sinful sexual desires. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now listen carefully to me. I'm going to close this message in just a moment, but please hear me. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Don't play with God. And don't play with sexual sin. Whatever you do, you do not want to get to a place in your life where habitual sin has so gripped your life that God removes his hand of grace. That's what it means when it says God gave them over. He removes his hand of grace, which every person needs to repent from their sin. That's basically what it means when, when God gives you over to the lustful desires of your flesh. You see... The 19th century theologians used to write and speak about God's common grace. The common grace is the idea that the grace of God is available to all. For example, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. There's a sense in which God's grace is available to all sinners so that they might repent and believe and be saved from their sin and the consequences of their sin, which is hell, eternal separation from God. But here in the midst of this most sobering passage, God makes it very clear that it is possible for some sinners to rebel so hard against God's grace, to reject God's truth for so long that he eventually he gives up. And he turns them over to their deep longing for the deceptive and destructive sin that they crave. God turns off the flow of his grace so that the hardened sinner can no longer repent and believe. It's like Pharaoh. Remember that frightening passage where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses kept going to him and saying, hey, let my people go. God sent me to tell you, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh would promise and then he would not do it. And because he continued to resist God, he never really intended to obey God in the first place. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The New Testament here would say, God turned him over. God turned him over. When you decide that you know better than God and you've received the truth of God, you've seen the revealed word of God in his creation and in his holy word, and you continue to reject God, he eventually says, okay, you can have what you really, 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 really want. Have it. Have all of it. Have it deep. Have it forever. 
Since you don't want none of me, you can have all of that. And you're going to see where where it ends for you. Listen, don't take God's grace for granted. Don't be like the people that Paul pleads with in Romans chapter 2, the next chapter, Romans 2, 4 and 5. Paul says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So I plead with you. Don't go there. That is the point of no return. And so today the Bible says if you hear his voice, do not, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Surrender your life and your will to Christ. Submit yourself and your way to Him. Let me tell you something. We will help you find the help that you need to walk in obedience. If you are here today and you are trapped in some besetting sin, whether it's of a sexual nature or if it's of an alcoholic nature or some other hard drug nature, whether it's you need anger management because you keep blowing up at your spouse and or abusing your, whatever your issue is that needs help. We're here to tell you that God's grace, God's spirit is here and can set you free today. We'll help you figure out what it means to walk in obedience and righteousness. The Bible says to confess your sins. That means to call your unbiblical Sins of a sexual nature or otherwise, it means to call them what God calls them. Impurity, wickedness, immorality. Repent of your sins, that means to turn around and to go the other way. If you're walking in this direction, away from God, to repent means to turn and go in His ways. To walk in His truth. It's not going to be easy. I'm not going to promise you that it's going to be a bed of roses. Because the Bible doesn't give us that promise. But I will promise you that the church will be with you. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we all have a story. We all have skeletons in our past. We all have bones in the closet, right? There's nobody that's perfect here. The church is a hospital for the wounded, the broken. It's not some ivory tower of saints who don't sin. It is a hospital for the wounded and the broken. And we can help each other be faithful to the word of God and the power of the spirit of Christ. Let me close with a reading from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, cheap grace means grace sold on the market by thrift store wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. 
What would grace be if it were not cheap, we say to ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for those whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. That's costly grace. It is a call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves their nets and follows Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. May God help us to understand the true nature of sin and to understand the true nature of God's amazing grace. Let's stand. This is God's time of invitation. Worship is not about singing songs as much as it is about responding to the revealed word of God to you. So what has God said to you today? What is he impressing upon your heart? What response is he requiring of you? Having listened to the word of God, is there some sin that you have treasured more than you have treasured relationship with Christ. Maybe you are secretly indulging in that sin and nobody else knows but you. At least that's what you think. But you know that God is in your bedroom. God sees and he knows the deepest, darkest secrets in our hearts and in our lives. We cannot hide from God. We cannot run from God. Wherever we are, He is. So, why don't you simply surrender and stop running? Why don't you simply come out of your darkened closet? Oh, not like the gays have come out to celebrate their sin. No, what if we came out of our closets to repent? to confess and to repent and to be healed of our sin. There is so much grace waiting for 
himself 